Esther Ledechka of the Czech Republic and she's about to write a new page of history at the Winter Olympic Games because this young lady, 22 years of age, is the world champion in Snowball Parallel GS and she came second in the uh, slalom in 2017. 20 World Cup podiums in snowboarding in 40 World Cup starts. She's won 10 of the last 12 World Cup Parallel GSs she's raced. She came 21st at the Alpine World Championship. She's a phenomenal athlete and she'll become the first athlete, male or female, to compete in both events at the same Olympic Games. It's just spectacular and watch her coming down here. Really nice technical turns. Great position on the ski and she's really... You can tell that she has been working hard to develop her alpine ski or alpine I like, skills. I like the way she talks to herself down the hill and she's doing incredibly well. Wow. Good recovery <laughs> from the Jetska. The 22-year-old from the Czech Republic is not here to make up the numbers. Fantastic skiing from Ledechka. Where is she on the clock now? Oh, she's got the wow. blue line. This would be a story. And then she gets pushed lower in the line. Ledechka, five gates or six gates from home, comes up with a massive mistake. It's been brilliant until then. Ledechka, touch for the line. 121 12. What another recovery from the youngster. Oh, she's taken the gold. She has taken gold. Ledechka from the Czech Republic cannot believe it. She cannot believe it. Nor can we. I felt after two weeks of Olympic Games, uh, it would be remiss to not at least have one illustration uh, connecting the two. And the, the Women's Super G uh, did provide uh, the perfect opportunity because uh, it was a story that really had already been written. Uh, Anna Weith, uh, the Austrian, uh, had done a brilliant time. Uh, she was about to win back-to-back -back gold uh, in the women's G. And then literally, with a hundredth of a second to go, the whole story has to be rewritten. Uh, so this is how uh, the Sydney Morning Herald summed it up. In one of the most astounding tales ever scripted at the Winter Games, Esther Ledecker, a Czech snowboarder competing on borrowed skis, snatched gold in the women's Super G with a dramatic flourish so unexpected that US broadcasters NBC had packed up and gone home <laughs> for the day. Now, I appreciate that the link uh, between the women's Super G and our passage today uh, might seem a little tenuous. But uh, they're both about uh, upturning, upending expectations. Because that story was already well and truly written. But of course, in the, in the case of Jesus and his words, there's a lot more at stake. Because those people who come before Jesus expecting to be blessed will go away humbled. And those people who we expect are least in the eyes of God, certainly least in the eyes of their culture, both, both morally and socially, they will go away lifted up. And so with that in mind, uh, let me pray uh, as we reflect on this passage today. 
Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters to listen to your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that my words will be faithful to your word today. I pray that your Holy Spirit is with each of us uh, and that you will convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen. If you've got your Bible, uh, it's good to keep it open and follow along. But our scene is set in verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So two men go up to the temple to pray. It's kind of the equivalent of us coming to church together this morning. So they would go up to pray. They would go to give uh, their tithe of 10% as an acknowledgement of God's good provision to them. And they would take their sacrifices for their sins. And if you were a person listening to this parable and listening to Jesus for the first time, then you could see how this parable is going to pan out because we've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. And so in the end, the Pharisee will be commended and the tax collector will be rightly condemned. That's how the story is supposed to go. Because the Pharisees in that time, got to take away our own sort of personal expectation because we've read the end of the story. That's cheating. But if you were, if you were there in, as a person in the first century and you hear a story about a Pharisee, then these are the good guys. These are the guys who are deeply committed to being obedient to God's law. They understood God's law. They studied God's law. These are people who you would look up to. So if it was our modern equivalent, uh, it would be like us looking up to someone like, you know, uh, Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis or John Piper. When he stands up as a Pharisee, we expect that he is the good guy. And he is thankful to God for his righteousness. So he stands up and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of everything I have. And again, if you're listening to this parable for the first time, you probably wouldn't have seen anything wrong with his prayer. I mean, it is good to listen to God's word. It is good not to steal. It is good not to sleep with someone else who is not your spouse. Giving generously is a good thing. But the way Luke introduces this parable and the way this man stands up in the middle of the crowd shows us there's a a significant amount of personal self-delusion on his behalf. And it's actually less about him worshipping God and more about how he stands and presents himself to the people. Uh, Here is a man who is superior to everyone around him. So as he stands in the temple, as people come forward with their sin offerings and their sacrifices, and as the blood of those sacrifices are literally poured against the side of the altar, as the forecourts are filled with the aroma of burning meat, he stands up in the midst of it all, and declares himself worthy to stand before a holy and perfect God. 
There is absolutely no recognition of the mercy he has received. There's no contrition for sin. There's no love for those people around him who he considers socially and morally inferior. There is just self-righteous superiority. In contrast, we have a tax collector. So verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He will not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, tax collectors really were hated. They collaborated uh, with the Roman Empire. Uh, They used their position and their authority to extort money from people. Yeah, if we're looking at the modern equivalent of the tax collector, perhaps it would be something like a pornographer who goes up to the temple to pray. But when these two men go down, one is declared justified. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, this parable is not saying if you confess your sins, you can just sort of continue doing whatever you did before. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying that when we recognise our sin, when we genuinely repent of our sin, then we can be confident that we will be forgiven. And with forgiveness and repentance comes change. I think for some of us, we give lip service to the idea of confession and repentance. So we pray for forgiveness, but often we pray with just enough sincerity that it appeases our guilt, but perhaps not so much that it actually changes our attitude and our behaviour. And certainly in our individualistic entitlement culture, we're encouraged to go even further to the point where we feel we actually have a right to God's favour. So instead of recognising our sin and being thankful to God for his grace and mercy, our culture says God should embrace us. Whatever life I choose, whatever it means for me to be true to myself, God should embrace me just the way I am. And in fact, we expect God to not just be permissive, but to actually bless my life with good health and a selection of positive experiences. And where there's an issue of sin, we expect that God has a moral obligation to be gracious. Of course, in the end, what we've done is recreated God in the image of our culture where we expect everything from God and nothing from ourselves. But if we really feel the weight of our sin, and if we have any appreciation for the genuine holiness of God, then we would look like this tax collector who comes before God, can't even lift his eyes, beats his breast, says, gut wrenching remorse. And he calls out to God for mercy, recognising that he is completely unworthy of any grace whatsoever. 
But the hope he has is even with a man like this, even a tax collector, when he comes before God, truly repentant of his sin, God is merciful. And if God can show mercy to the archetypal sinner, to someone like a tax collector, then there is genuine hope for us. So verse 14, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So far we have a Pharisee humbled, uh, a tax collector exalted. In the next section we have parents bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples are outraged. Yeah, he's a great teacher. He doesn't have time for little children. Little children are noisy and they're dirty and they get in the way during morning tea. (laughs) There's no time for people like this. Because what does Jesus do again? Turns expectation on its head. Bring the little children to me. And not only are they precious in the eyes of God, but actually the children have something to teach us which for the poor disciples is probably insult to injury. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Children aren't really known for good works or wisdom, uh, which is why our emergency departments at our hospitals are you know, constantly full of children with you know, Lego in their nasal cavities and things like that. Um, the ultimate walk of shame for any parent is to take the same child back Uh, the next day to remove the same piece of Lego from the same cavity. Uh, Children are, however, known for their dependence. They depend on adults for food and protection and guidance. And children are known for trust. When they jump into our arms, they trust that we will catch them. When we tell them everything's okay, they trust that we are telling them the truth. And as Christians, we are called to embrace the kingdom of God like a child, where there's a complete dependence on the mercy and the grace of God. And it's a trust that's grounded in God's faithfulness. We have seen that God has been faithful to his promises in the past. We have seen that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And so we can be confident that if those things are true, then God will continue to be faithful in the present and the future. That is a wonderfully, cognitively true response. But do we earnestly believe it? So do we trust that God knows best when it comes to how we live? Do we really believe that obedience brings freedom and sin slavery? Do we trust that God is sovereign even in the brokenness of the world? When we look at the atrocities of war or a small child dying of brain cancer, do we still trust that God is sovereign? And that God is in control. Do we trust God when he says, my grace is sufficient for you? Your eternity is secure because it's not about how good you are, but that I am holding on to you and that I will never let you go. 
Do we trust God's promise? Because that's what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God like a child. It's not about us knowing everything. It's about trusting the God who knows everything. So we have a Pharisee humbled, a tax collector exalted, children exalted. Go figure. And in terms of expectations, we're now at zero for three. And so now we come to a ruler who again asks Jesus, what good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a good question because if you've been following this conversation, listening to Jesus and watching what's going on, then everything is being upturned. And so now this, this ruler is starting to wonder for himself, well, what about me? And like our Pharisee, in the eyes of the people, this ruler would have been considered a role model, godly citizen. So this is what God said to Israel way back in Deuteronomy. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You get the idea. The passage goes on. Godly people receive God's blessing. This ruler has been blessed. Therefore, this ruler is a godly man. And if there's any doubt then we just need to listen to to the the conversation that that goes on after that. Because Jesus says to him, you know, keep the commandments. And he declares earnestly, all these commands I've kept since I was a boy. He's a genuine, earnest, God-fearing man. But if you look at the list of commands that Jesus quotes in this particular passage, you'll notice that they're all around the theme of loving your neighbour. And so now Jesus goes that little bit further to say, what does it really mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind? And so he asks, he says to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is about money, but more significantly, it's about the heart. So again, in the words of Jesus, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he can't do it. When he came to Jesus, he called him good teacher. And Jesus replies and says, only God alone is good. He was more right than even he realised. But when it comes to giving up everything, when it comes to genuinely following Jesus, not just being moral or ethical, it all becomes too much. You know, money gives us access to so many things, doesn't it? You know, it's more than just you know, a house or a car. It gives us the freedom to go where we want and to do what we want. It gives us a sense of significance and value in our community. It brings us respect and security. It gives us social standing. 
And for this rich young man, the cost of following Jesus is too high. But if Jesus was talking to us today, it might not be about money. You know, go and give everything. Well, you can have my $8.50. That's probably not too much of a challenge. Uh, but what, what, what would it be for you? You know, if Jesus says, give up what to follow me? That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. To give up our worldly security, to give up our worldly identity to follow him. And when Jesus sees this guy's reaction, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Some people read uh, the eye of a needle uh, as a reference to a gate uh, in the wall of Jerusalem. So the idea was that at night the the main gates were closed and there's this tiny little gate uh, in the wall and uh, you've got to strip a camel of of all its baggage uh, to then get through the eye of the needle. You've got to go through with nothing. Uh, which is a, a lovely kind of illustration, uh, and it's but completely untrue. Uh, so there, there is uh, a, a carving uh, on a church in Germany of, of that type of, of idea, uh, but it's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Uh, there was no gate called the eye of the needle. Uh, we need to take Jesus' words here literally. We need to feel the weight of the metaphor. But it's not without hope. There is hope for the rich. Because as we see in chapter 19, in the very next chapter, Jesus will meet another rich man, a tax collector, Zacchaeus. And after that encounter, he will say, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So now everything's been turned upside down. The exalted have been humbled. The humbled have been exalted. And now Peter stands up and says, well, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. And the point behind the statement is, Lord, is there hope for us? Where do we stand in the humbled and the exalted? You've turned everything upside down. What about us? And Jesus replies with this great word of assurance. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brother or sister or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. The disciples have given up everything to follow Jesus. They've given up their livelihood. They've given up their social position. They've given up family because they are convinced that Jesus really is God's promised Messiah. And it was a conviction grounded in their experience. They saw what Jesus did. They heard what Jesus had to say. And by the time we get to the resurrection, they are willing to face death itself for that conviction. I think for the modern skeptic and the cynic, Faith in Jesus really is the ultimate waste of a life. It's perpetuated by the need for something bigger than ourselves and a combination of 
of legend and conspiracy. And so what we are doing this morning is a complete waste of a perfectly good Sunday morning. And they would be right if what they believed was true. So even the Apostle Paul concedes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people must be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This world might consider us foolish, but when you're confident in what you have, when you are confident of God's grace and mercy, then you're really not too fussed what the world thinks, are you? Because you know what you have is infinitely greater than any criticism they could possibly throw at you. We have God's wisdom for how to live the full life, starting with a relationship with the God who created us. His word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. As we have the Holy Spirit transforming us and conforming us to be more like him. And even when we lose sight of that path, even when we get out of step with the Spirit, our situation is not hopeless or fearful because we know that where there is repentance, there is also forgiveness and therefore confidence. We can look around at the world and and the evil of our world And at times we wonder, where's God in all of this? But removing God doesn't remove the problem of evil. But with God, there is at least hope of justice. You might be looking at your own life and saying, where is God in in all the complexity and uncertainty of my life? You know, I feel that God should be more present. Well, without God, we confront that uncertainty alone. With God, we confront it with his strength and his comfort, confident that he is sovereign. And when things don't work out in this lifetime, when there is no great redemption story, there's no Job ending or Joseph ending, even then... As we put our faith in Christ, we are confident of a certain future. This world is going to be complicated, isn't it? We know that. We either walk it alone, trusting in our own strength and our own wisdom, or we're thankful that we walk with Christ. Today, we've met a fictitious Pharisee and a tax collector. We've met children, uh, a wealthy ruler, and the disciples. There's an awful lot of characters. Uh, And so the question, uh, as we conclude today, is who do you resonate with most out of all of these people, for better or worse? You do this in your head. It's not an out loud question. But who do you resonate with the most? If you're someone who tends to get frustrated with the ungodliness of the people around you, then hear the words of Jesus as he speaks to those who are confident in their own righteousness. 
if you feel you always have the right to question God and to demand answers, then have a look at the children who trust Jesus with a complete and utter dependence. And if you're a person who comes feeling completely unlovable and unworthy, then know that God loves you to the point of dying on the cross to pay the price for your sin. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let me pray. Dear Lord, uh, as we listen to your word this morning, as Jesus confronts us with uh, turning over all of our expectations of what it means to be good and right before you, Lord, we pray that we humble ourselves before you, that we recognise our sin and that we repent. At the same time, Lord, we we are thankful for your grace and mercy. So, Lord, as we uh, finish today, as we reflect on your word as we leave, Lord, we pray that you convict us of the things that we need to hear. Amen.